1: We'd like to thank our brand new Patreon backers, Jeremy and Richard at the producer level, Rebecca at the meeple level, and our new upgraded producer, Eric. You all rock! Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast of board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. Anthony, welcome back and welcome to you joining us for the final round of march gamer madness or what's quickly becoming my game group getting very very angry with me for not picking their favorite games (laughs)
0: yeah right doesn't it always that way like the only time the people you actually game with mention the podcast is when they're like hey (laughs) hey i heard you picked that other game and you didn't like the game i like what's up with that you're like well what about this other thing you like that game right like i didn't listen to that episode
1: Yeah, I ask everyone to listen to the podcast. We have a great time. Maybe they haven't gotten to podcasting generally yet, but there's so many great board gaming podcasts, and you love to board game, so why not listen to the podcast? But, you know, everyone has their opinion on board gaming, so that's why when we do the gamer bracket, we try to do two things. First off, we try to stick to a very strict rubric. So the rules of the bracket for this particular March Gamer Madness happens to be Thematically, which game best represents that era? So, you know, we're talking about art, we're talking about theme, we're talking about mechanics, all the different things that come into play. And then, obviously, second, we want everyone to be part of the contest because that allows us to do a tiebreaker. If you listen to the original brackets, we actually had the dreaded die that we used to roll to kind of break ties, and that was a little chaotic. So, we wanted to bring more listeners into the group. But as always, please let other people know we are not turned off by feedback that may not agree with us at times. We want more of that feedback. So please continue to listen, hit us up on all the social media platforms possible, and especially let us know what games you love to talk about so that we can talk about it on an upcoming episode. Anthony, I'm really excited. We are finally wrapping up March Gamer Madness for 2019. What do you think about the prospects for the final round?
0: Oh, man. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, other than there's a couple oddballs in there and I'll take credit for it where it's due. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, there's a lot of good games here. I I don't honestly know which one's going to win. Like looking at the eight, I don't actually know yet, and I feel like I should because I have half the
1: vote. Well, we're going to get to that in our feature review, but we have a regular episode for you for this week. We're back to the regular episodes, but before we get into that, we want to thank all our Patreon backers that help us bring a brand new episode, so thank you so much. If you're not backing us on Patreon, please check out patreon.com BGA. We have so much great content on there. Join us on the Slack Groups. Tell us how we messed up the bracket. Let us know what you want to talk about. And obviously, there are special episodes there. So, Anthony, let's go to our Patreon contest. What
0: do you have? All right. Yeah, so last week, we had Evan. Congratulations again, Evan. He uh, picked a game for himself. Uh, it would be on its way to him very shortly, once confirmed. This week's winner is Amy. Amy jumped on board at the beginning of the year. So uh, she was... Uh, right on board as we kind of launched this new contest uh to kick off 2019 and as as we do every week give away a game to one of our patreon backers amy will get to pick one of those games uh, from a decent long list supplied to us by game surplus and uh, that'll be shooting its way out to her um hopefully by the end of the week well big congratulations to
1: amy evan we definitely want to hear from you so we can get your games out to you and if you'd like to jump into the contest once again patreon.com backslash bga let's make this podcast even more fun for you these podcasting dollars go into producing the podcast and giving you games so please jump on and if you can't at the time back us for at least a buck let other people know about the podcast and let them know that great board gaming goodness is happening right now all right anthony so that's what's going on with bga let's go on to our listeners what's our question of the week
0: all right. Yes, yeah, so we're back to the question of the week. It's been uh, about three weeks since we have one of these. So we got a bit of a backlog of good questions. Uh, I want to share with you guys this week. It is what's your favorite game from your favorite designer? So this is different than just what's your favorite game, because I feel like this is the case for me, too. Most people's favorite game is not necessarily made by their favorite designer. It's a game that transcends all that. Like for me, it's War of the Ring. By far my favorite game I've ever played, but those particular designers, I've played some of the other games and they're just not necessarily my cup of tea, right? So uh, I think that happens a lot. So I wanted to know, you know, pick your favorite designer and what's your favorite game from them? Uh, so got a lot of good answers here. Uh, John gave uh, his is Anachrony by David Turchi. Um, also mentions Dice Settlers is kind of a close second there. Uh, Kyle mentions Danielle Tashini and says, "You know, Voyages of Marco Polo, Zolkin, or Teotihuacan." So he couldn't pick one, I guess. Germain <laughs> <laughs> mentions Uwe Rosenberg and a feast for Odin. Yeah, oh <laughs> good job. Uh, Brian says Mage Knight from Vlada, and I feel like Mage Knight is one that probably pops up a lot. That maybe isn't from people's favorite designer, but I mean, Vlada is an amazing designer. But Mage Knight kind of transcends that for a lot of people. David says Bruges from Mr. Point Salad. Uh, <laughs> Stefan Feld for all of you uh, uninitiated out there. Nice. Uh, and then we had Chad actually gave you three different answers. He said Lisboa from Vitala Serta or Uwe Rosenberg, Fields of Arl, or Stefan Feld Trajan. So he couldn't pick his favorite designer, but he did pick his favorite games from each of those designers. There you um, go. Got a whole bunch more of these. If you want to check them out, they're all on Facebook. Uh, for me, it's it's also Vitala Cerda, I think. And I don't, you know, Lis- Lisboa is way up there. We're going to talk about it later today. But I, I still stick by The Gallerist. I think that's still my favorite game of his. And that a good representation of this question, too. Like, that's, I think, number 15-ish on my top 100. But from him, someone whose games I universally love, that's my favorite.
1: I have to spend more time and really have to push more Lacerda games because I haven't gotten enough of them to the table to say that Lacerda is my favorite designer. Lisboa is one of my favorite games. Obviously, Vinos is out there. As you mentioned, the Gallaris is something I know I'm going to love. I have it, just haven't gotten the chance to get either of those games to the table just because they're a little heavier and crunchier than most games that you can bring to game night. I probably would be totally on board for you with that as well. I'm gonna have to say, you know, Mr. Point Salad himself, Stefan Fell, just because he has such an incredible gameology here, and probably my favorite game. I'm gonna, you know, go along with our our friend here and say that Bruges is probably my favorite of his games. I guess closely followed by Amerigo. Just something really amazing about that cube tower and selecting actions. I'm going to stick one more in there because Feld was already mentioned, and that's probably uh, Vladimir Suchi. Uh, I love Shipyard. That's probably my top game from him. But Last Will, Prodigal's Club, and obviously just came out recently was Underwater City. So it's a really tough one there just because of its extensive, extensive resume. I think Feld with Bruges probably just, just ekes it out a little bit there. All right. So if you'd like to jump into the conversation and let us know about your favorite designers and favorite games, obviously we're on Twitter, BoardGamersAnonymous.com. We're on Facebook and so many great places, our Slack group on Patreon.com slash BGA. We really want to hear from you. You make our podcast go, and we are so, so very appreciative of all of your support financially or otherwise. Just let other people know that really means a lot to us. Okay, Anthony, so that's everything that's going on with our listeners. Now let's get on to our acquisition disorders. What do you have up for us this week?
0: All right. Yeah, this one kind of jumped out at me. Um, I had a few that I was looking at because we haven't done acquisition disorders in a couple weeks. I want so many games. I know, right? <laughs> it backs up really fast. So this one just popped up yesterday, I think, that we were recording. And it's not a new game, but it's a premium edition of an older game that I actually really liked and just didn't get to the table very much. And that's Valley of the Kings. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a It was a small box deck builder uh, from AEG and designer Tom Cleaver. And they released, I think, three different versions of the game. So they were all independent of each other. They could play independently, similar to like what Star Realms does. And you could also mix them together. And they had different kind of um, rules that kind of crossed them all over. They had solo rules and these challenge modes, all sorts of cool stuff. The difference is this time you can get all of it. In a single package, all three previously released games, they also gave you enough stuff to play with five or six players, plus the solo, plus the cards are bigger. So they're they, you know, usually normal sized cards, now they're big tarot sized cards. I don't know what this is going to cost, but it is a legitimately very good deck building game in which you are trying to acquire all these different goods that you're going to put in your tomb. And I guess to have the best death and burial in the valley of the kings and the way the game ends up working is if you don't get the cards out of your deck and into your stash put them in the tomb you won't score them at the end of the game but you might have some pretty good cards that you want to keep using so it's kind of like a almost a press your luck element to it where you're like well i want to keep using the cards i have but if the game ends before i stash them then i'm not going to score them and it doesn't matter how much cool stuff i could do so It's a cool balancing act and the way the different versions of the game kind of played out was always very fun. Uh, I just didn't hit the table too often because just, I don't know, something about that little small box. I think having more player options, a larger pool of cards, just a bigger, you know, more vibrant presentation hopefully gets us out a little bit more. And like I said, we'll see what it costs. (laughs) I don't know. Like they didn't need to upgrade the card size, but I'm sure we're going to pay for it. Um, But we'll see what that is. But uh, yeah, Valley of the Kings Premium Edition is on my radar.
1: Yeah, it's one of these strange little games that actually is very good, but for some reason just never really got a lot of table time. I did get a chance to play it. I enjoyed the original version of this, and it was something that I'd hope to get more play time with. It just, I I, I think like you're mentioning here, the general look of the game and how it presents itself on the table was just a little lackluster at the time in comparison to a lot of the other games, so... It just kind of fell away. So I, I, I guess this is a really good thing. It'll bring the game back to the table. And especially with Brass, Birmingham and Lancashire coming out and just really kind of upgrading components does a lot for the game. So solid mechanics, typically a great game. But as you mentioned, price might be the issue that might keep this game back a little bit. But maybe people will pick up the older copies. So maybe in the end, that'll work out for everybody. All right, Anthony, they want to talk about a new Kickstarter that popped up recently. This is Fujikoro Deluxe. This is from game brewer and they have a brand new designer here his name is jeremy demir and what we're looking at here and in particular why i'm pointing this game out is for two reasons first off it's since it's a kickstarter and kickstarters tend to kind of show off these lavish components you're looking at this here and the game itself is really interesting what you're doing here is you're one of these samurai that are sent into this volcano by the shogun to Retrieve all of these fantastical gifts and valuable goods before Mount Fuji, you know, finally explodes. So, you are actually exploring the volcano, and as you explore, the tiles flip over, and there's going to be lava on the tile. So, you have to deal with the danger of the terrain. So, basically, what you're looking at here is it's somewhat Gloomhaven esque. It is a Euro dungeon crawl game. Beautiful board, beautiful components. And as you're exploring this volcano, you're also coming in conflict with the dragons because of course there's dragons. And the dragons look awesome in this game. So you will be battling dragons for victory points and you will also be upgrading your weapons and you'll be getting additional monks to help you along the way. And there'll be cards that actually give you new equipment and specialized weapons. So you can have a unique character by the end of the game. And as you pick up resources, you'll actually build these special weapons on your player board. So they'll actually look like a sword or a spear or whatever the special magic weapon is. And then once someone reaches 30 points, then it triggers kind of like an end game mechanic, kind of like Atlantis Rising, where the volcano is now going to explode and you have to get out. So we've seen this in other games previously where now there's a timer to click out. And if you don't click out, you're not going to win the game. So think Clank in that kind of way. So beautiful components, Euro game mechanics in a dungeon crawling game, something you should definitely check out. It's on Kickstarter now. It's currently already past its backing level, and it will finally wrap up on Friday, April 19th. So check that out. Looks really interesting. Something I might consider you know, If you're going to get this, you're probably going to get the deluxe edition, so it's going to be about $111, so it's super, super expensive, but check this out because you're going to get a lot of good stuff with it. It is pretty, but it is pricey. Yeah. I think yeah. that's a lot of what Game Brew tends to do. They bring out these games, like recently, We Saw Kugan. Beautiful, nice game, but the deluxe version of it was pretty pricey, plus the delivery was pretty expensive. But I think that's just what we're dealing with Kickstarter these days. They have to do something at a high production level in order to get your attention, but you have to pay that high price level because they're looking to get your attention. All right, so that's everything for Acquisition Disorders, Anthony. Everyone's waiting to what
0: games we got to the table over the last three weeks. We want to talk about all of them. But we don't have time for all of them right now. So pick one and let us know what you played. Uh, and that is, of course, Wingspan. Uh, Wingspan is the the hotness of hotnesses. It is a new game from It's designed by Elizabeth Hargrave, and it is about building an aviary of birds. And so it has the typical Stonemaier production level. You've got the dice tower. It looks like a birdhouse. You've got little wooden dice. You've got little, you know, eggs plastic eggs you've got over 150 cards of unique artwork representing 170 different species of birds in north america and just everything here is just pretty to look at and it's just an amazing production right and you bring it out and you set it up and it's relatively quick and easy to teach take a 10 minute teach give or take and the game plays smoothly hour hour and a half so it's hitting that perfect middle ground of this is for gamers but also non-gamers could play it, which I think is very important because you have you know, a very rabid f- fan base of birders and people who just like birds in general who are very interested in this game, as can be illustrated by recent write-ups in like the New York Times and The Guardian and all these big newspapers and major media outlets who are seeing this and all the hype and fervor for people trying to find the game and uh, are interested in writing about it. So it's kind of interesting as someone inside the hobby to see all this happening and have not have played the game up until recently, and then finally get a chance to sit down with a game that has been just ridiculously hyped to the moon and is already in the top 100 on BGG, is already probably sold out for the next six months, despite these huge print runs that are coming. And it's usually I'm on the front end of that hype, but now it's on the back end. And it's kind of interesting to, to kind of step in and see, is the game that good? Is it that amazing to, to warrant all this? it's not going to live up to the hype. No game would, right? But the game is is very interesting. It is an engine building game. You have, you know, and a tableau builder similar to people have compared it to Terraforming Mars and Gizmos, which I think in some ways is apt on both sides. It's definitely lighter than Terraforming Mars by a lot. And it's got a little bit more structure than Gizmos. So kind of a nice middle ground. But the idea of the game is that you're going to have a hand of cards. They're all unique birds. You're going to place them in these different environments in front of you, you have a board that has, you know, the the forests and the plains and then the the swamp, the water, and you're going to place your birds in those different places by spending a certain number of eggs and a certain amount of food to place them out. And then later you can take actions in each of those three rows. And every card that's already there that has an ability will trigger going backwards. So the longer you play the game, the more things trigger, you build these little engines and they do things better fun, hopefully. And that's basically it. The game takes, like I said, very little time to teach. It's relatively quick. Every time I've played this has been with at least two or three new players because there's so many people who want to play it. And all those plays were under 90 minutes with all the teaching. So it definitely hits that point really well. And it is accessible, which is, I think, part of the reason this is such a big hit is that it is so accessible. The production level, like I mentioned, is incredible. So you look at it and you're like, wow, this is amazing. The price point is acceptable it's good it's like 55 which is what i would ex- guess if you showed me everything that comes in the box and the birds and the amount of effort that went into making sure that these were not only all unique but accurate right they have flavor text that represents you know the type of bird they are their powers are representative of what types of birds they are so you have like scavengers and carrion eaters and you know, birds that lay eggs in other birds' nests, and waterfowl, and all these different things. And it all makes sense thematically, which is really, really cool and impressive. At the same time, the game is relatively straightforward. You're only going to have a small number of cards in your hand at any point. It's relatively expensive up front to actually play anything out. It seems to generally be you know, you, you're going to end up doing roughly the same things as everybody else the first couple of rounds because you need to have, you know, an engine to generate more food. You need to have an engine to generate more card draw. And sometimes you're just not going to draw the cards you need to do those things. And there's only three cards out in the tableau. So none of these are unique problems to Wingspan. They're just things that come up in this type of game where you're drawing cards and trying to build an engine out of them. If you're building towards a certain thing and the right cards don't come out to support that, you have to adjust. And so. It is simultaneously easy to teach and accessible, but also we saw some decent spreads in the point totals at the end of some games where the person who got in it, it clicked and they got the cards they needed scored like 98 points. And other people were down in the sixties because they didn't quite get it or they didn't get the things they need to pull together. So I did enjoy it quite a bit. I don't think it for me, at least will have the longevity or the, kind of the lasting impact at my table that, you know, like a terraforming Mars might. But I do like it more than gizmos. I think it has more theme It has more interesting mechanics. It has a better engine that comes out of it. I really like the fact that when you build your engine, you don't choose the order in which things trigger. Um, The order in which the cards are laid out is the order in which they're going to trigger backwards. So it takes a lot of the AP out of the game, which again, just makes it more accessible. You know, a lot of the decisions here seem to be geared towards making it easy to learn and quick and relatively simple to play. And I keep saying easy, simple, quick and all that. And it doesn't mean the game is necessarily easy, quick, simple. It's not a light, light game. It's, you know, light medium, but it's um, accessible to anybody who wants to check out this game about birds. And there are going to be a lot of people, especially after these big articles that want to do that, who don't know board games um, and don't know these mechanisms as well. So I liked it a lot. I'm kind of on that line in between of, It's definitely, definitely a play. Everybody should play the game, especially with all the hype. I don't know if it's quite a buy yet for me, but I'm right there in the middle. So, you know, (laughs) it's kind of leaning on that fence. Like I was telling Chris, I was telling you before the podcast, I have gizmos on my shelf and I picked that up and I liked it. And now I have this and I like this more. So does that make this a buy? Because I'm going to keep it and probably get rid of gizmos, I guess. But it's like, it didn't blow me out of the water. It didn't wow me in a, you know, in a way that would match kind of the hype that's around the game at the moment.
1: It's interesting when you talk about expectations and about social media and people really pushing out a narrative about the game, this is a brand new game and it hasn't gone, I guess, mass production. So everyone has a chance to get a game, but there's a lot of really good talk about this game. Obviously the designer had an article in the New York times, which is, tremendous that a board game would reach that level of notoriety and as you mentioned the production is very good it's about birds which is something we see every day no matter pretty much where you are in the world the artwork is fantastic the game weight is appropriate for playing with a lot of different people so i i guess it's somewhat deserved and i'm and i'm really happy about that and i'm happy for the designer she did an outstanding job here We've seen copies of this game go for $1,000 with the extra components kind of thrown in there. So it's kind of crazy that <laughs> that's going on. And we've seen the game pop up. I think currently it's number 92 on Board Game Geek's Top 100. So I definitely want to get a chance to play this game. I could see picking this game up and buying this game. if if you As you mentioned, if it plays like Gizmos, and I like Gizmos, with the exception it really is a themeless game and this actually has a theme and really nice artwork, I probably would buy this too if it's that good. So expectations are rough, but uh, at least it, it met some level of high quality, I guess, that were you
0: know expected from Stonemaier Games. So yeah, this looks like something I want to get to the table as well. Yeah, I mean, I would say it just like, everything you said is absolutely correct. And it's, I think the one last thing I wanted to mention is just, it's really cool this game exists because it's not it's not a theme we typically see. And it's not the level of detail we typically see. The amount of research uh, Elizabeth put into this is ridiculous. And also just the production is is a nice representation in the hobby that we don't normally see. We have a woman designer, woman artists, um, and just ridiculously amazing artwork here. Uh, that's the one thing everybody agreed on. People would walk by the table like, wow, that's really cool looking. <laughs> so I think it's just, it's really an impressive piece of work and i think that's at least part of why it's getting so much attention but it's also a very solid game under all that it's just from my perspective in reviewing it is it you know the level of game i was hoping for or expecting maybe not 100 there but everything else is absolutely spot on you know what people are saying so definitely worth tracking down and giving a go if you know somebody who has one <laughs> all right nice well i'm going to talk about a new game that
1: recently came out from Brotherwise games this is Call to Adventure. Now, Call to Adventure is, I guess, their attempt of putting together a very lightweight RPG game in a board game format. So the game is relatively simple, and you could pretty much play this with anybody. This is definitely a family game, probably about a 2.0, you know, as far as weight's concerned. So gateway game, family game, everyone's going to enjoy it. There's nothing about this game that's going to really push anybody off. So you start with, you know, have an opportunity to choose an origin character, and the game basically plays in three rounds. So the origin round starts off, and you get these cards, and you get to choose what your origin is based on these two cards. And you're going to play a card, and the card's going to have symbols on it, or runes that you're going to be able to throw, kind of like dice. So you pick your origin character, and the origin's going to just give you some basic information about how your character started off. Maybe they were royalty, maybe they were an orphan, things like that. And you're also going to pick your motivation kind of situation as far as your middle card is concerned. And then finally, you're going to pick your destiny card. Now, that card's going to be face down, unlike the other first two cards. And that's going to be your final bonus card. That's where you're going to score a lot of your points. So you really want to keep that in mind when you're building your tableau up. So if you have the generic version of the game, which I do, you're going to basically have your card set up in a market. So you're going to have your three different sections or storytelling elements of the game. And a number of cards will flip over based upon the number of players. And you'll have an opportunity when it's on your turn to look at the first two cards that you have face up and look at the symbols that are available. Look at the symbols that are on the cards in the market. And then you'll make a decision on what card you are going to attempt a challenge. So there'll be cards that are challenges in this game. And typically the challenges will have a top and bottom and it will have different story elements to it. It'll say like, you know, save a lost love or fight a dragon or something of that nature. Now, some of those story modes might be a little more difficult. And basically what you're shooting for beyond the kind of thematic, you know, presentation of the game is the top and bottom are going to have either a rune on it or a rune and a special story icon on it, or both. It could have a whole number of different things on it. So basically, you're going to take three of these, what they call runes, and they're just basically three little small tiles. And on one side, there is a symbol. On the other side, there's another symbol or no symbol whatsoever. And if you have any matching runes on your initial tableau setup that's based on that card, you're going to pick up some additional runes. You'll shake them in your hand, and you'll throw them like dice. And then you'll count up the different symbols. So slashes in the game is one success and a symbol, a full symbol is two successes. And there's an option before you roll your runes to pick up these kind of corruption runes. So it gives you an opportunity to spend an experience to be able to roll, but risk getting a little bit corrupted. Now, corruption in this game isn't terrible because it allows you to play other cards that are called anti-hero cards. But if you go too far, you can not play hero cards, which are like these other opportunity cards that you'll be able to play in the game. If you're successful, you take the card and you, you slip it in either on the top or the bottom based upon what you were going for. And now you have some additional ruins and story mode characters that will allow you to score victory points based upon a set collection. In addition, there are allies in the games. There are adversaries, which are harder missions that you can add to the game. And there are just basically upgrades that you're able to... Just meet the the certain condition and add to your particular tableau. Once you get three cards from each of the three, three different story points, the game comes to an end. Everyone finishes the roundup. And then you do a little kind of, you know, upkeep math as far as like, all right, so I have three of these runes and four of these story modes. And I have certain of these victory point symbols. It's a little tricky at the end as far as counting up all the different possibilities that comes to an end. But basically you are playing a solo game with everybody else with the exception of the anti-hero guards, which are just kind of like take that cards. You'll just play it on a player just to kind of mess them up. It seems a little out of place in this game, although I understand it thematically as far as how it works in the game. This game reminds me a lot of role player. So if you played role player, you probably in some fashion have played Call to Adventure. Now role player is a little heavier because you are trying to match up different abilities and trying to get the right cards and the right armor. Cult of Adventure is a lighter version of this with better artwork. The artwork in this game is fantastic. It's very evocative of a story. But to be honest, when you play the game itself, even though you might want to add certain story elements to your character, you're only going to have a certain number of runes available. So It's almost impossible in some cases to roll what is needed for certain challenges. So I found myself a lot of times going, well, that seems like a really cool element. I definitely want to, you know, save the princess, but I don't have any of those runes. So I could roll three basics and pick up a whole bunch of corruption runes. But that's really not a really good situation. So I will roll what I have, which means that I'm now going to be a pickpocket. All right, so that's fate or whatever it is, and now your destiny moves that way. So, okay, that's a thing. As I mentioned, it's on the lighter side. You can play this with anybody. The components, the little runes are a little bit light, a little cheap. The cards themselves are very large. The artwork is fantastic, but the cards are very thin. I found my cards, like, kind of warping a little bit right from the start. So, if you really want to be able to kind of tuck these cards properly, you probably need to sleeve these cards. Otherwise, they don't get a lot of touching, so I wouldn't really worry about too much, but it's a little thin. So for Call to Adventure, I'm going to give this a very, very light play. As I mentioned, it fits into that kind of role-player realm, but a little bit lighter. So if you like role-player, you should definitely check out Call to Adventure. I should mention Call to Adventure has a solo mode to It has a co-op mode to it. Those modes aren't as good as the competitive mode, but if you're into that, definitely check those out. I tried them. Not a big fan. The cooperative mode doesn't really do much. The competitive mode really isn't that competitive. So don't avoid doing that. It's not really that kind of problematic. So a light,
0: light play as far as Call to Adventure is concerned. I actually backed this one on Kickstarter almost solely because they have like the IPs for some fantasy novel series that I like. But uh, I have not yet played the game. I sleeved everything because the version I backed came with sleeves and kind of oogled the... yeah, the artwork. you're very pretty, but have yet yet to actually get it out? I think they make
1: the mistake by really pushing the idea that this is kind of like an RPG board game or a storytelling board game because it really isn't. It really is like beautiful artwork and then you're rolling or I guess, you know, throwing runes to match certain symbols. So the story mode's almost secondary. Like at the end, you're like, oh, My character came from this place, wanted to do these things, and then met their destiny in this way. Okay, that's kind of a thing, but it never really felt like I was personally making choices for my character. All right, so that is Call to Adventure. All right, now, Anthony, let's get on to the feature review. It is the final round of our Board Gamers Madness, what everyone's been talking about. Of course, it is... The best historic error for games. So once again, we are taking a look at four different errors for these board games and trying to figure out which games best represent that particular error, time and history, artwork, thematic elements, gameplay, mechanics, everything that comes into the game. When you sit down and play this game, do you feel like, yeah, I can get a sense of what those people were going through culturally, through military through all their different constructions and their lifestyles? Does it, you know, fit that particular era and theme? All right, Anthony, let's get on to our first round. We are going way, way far back to the ancient era, and we have our final two games from this round, round four. We have our number one seed, Seven Wonders, versus our number 10 seed, Ennis. Anthony, this is the last time we're going way back in time to the ancient era. What do you think?
0: Oh, man. Uh, Yeah, I mean, like everything I've said so far, I mean, Seven Wonders does a great job of representing kind of the breadth of all of the different, um, you know, key points of interest in, in the ancient world. And not just, you know, with the Seven Wonders themselves, quote unquote, but in all the additional content that comes in with the leaders and the Tower of Babel. And, you know, now with the Armadas and everything else that kind of just represents that era, However abstracted it might be with just artwork and no real you know, flavor or story behind it. Innis, however, is just wholly unique and does so many cool different things and is, also happens to be just a brilliant board game. So this is pretty tough. I think for me, I'm going to stick with the oldie but the goodie and the one that just keeps coming out with new content that just does a good job of representing um, the time period that it's based on. And uh, for me, that's Seven Wonders, but it's really close. Yeah, it's
1: really close for me as well. I love Innis, and it really does a great job talking about... The culture and their government and, and basically the wind conditions are all about trying to control that land politically and the gods that they're dealing with. But Seven Wonders does something that's very unique about dealing with that ancient era. All the technologies, the artwork that represents the technologies, the artwork that represents the wonders of the time are fantastic. So you really get a lot out of the game, as you mentioned, all the different expansions, probably a little fair unfair to use here. I mean, and this is going to get another expansion, so maybe it pumps the game up a little bit. But yeah, the Tower of Babel, you have the cities, you have a lot of different things. Armada just came out for Seven Wonders that brings in the different naval combat. So a lot of good stuff. I'm going to go to Seven Wonders as well. So that means for our final round, Seven Wonders from the Ancient Bracket moves on. All right, so we move on to our Medieval Bracket. A lot of our favorite games come from this particular era and we have two great ones. So first off, we have our number one seed, the voyages of Marco Polo versus the Cinderella team out of nowhere. Like the Vikings stormish the English countryside, eight, seven, eight Vikings. Anthony, you gotta have to say something good here. What do you got?
0: Yeah, I know. It's just, this is a funny one because I said this last week that we clearly misseeded eight, seven, eight Vikings. Uh, Um, based on its ranking on BGG, because it's such a good representation of this era, not just, you know, the, the Viking culture, but the English culture and the clash between the two. And I, you know, the Voyages of Marco Polo is also just, you know, a fantastic game that does a good job of showing, like, these different trade routes and the different people that were part of these different expeditions and the cities that were traveled to in the East and all of that. But 878 Vikings is actually, you know, It's not just a war game because there's a lot of war games we could have brought into this and we mostly focus on board games. It is an accessible, friendly board game, asymmetrical powers and everything in it just designed to showcase this is the way the English fought. This is the way the Vikings fought. And this is kind of the the ebb and flow of that time period. So despite the fact it's a 15 seed and way down on the list, I'm going to go with 878 Vikings. Yeah, this is a really tough one. The Voyages of Marco Polo is a fantastic game and it gets so much table time.
1: And there is some representation of the Voyages of Marco Polo, especially with the expansion. But as you mentioned, 878 Vikings, not just in the asymmetrical gameplay, not just even the characters, but you actually have to play out history. And there are a lot of additional little elements that come into the gameplay as far as that's concerned. So I'm going to go with 878 Vikings. The Cinderella team continues to move on and wins the medieval bracket. So next up is our early modern period. And we have two great games here. We have our number five seed, Fresco, versus our number three seed, Lorenzo Imanifico.
0: Okay, Anthony, great times here. What do you got? All right, yeah, so we have uh, the artwork of the Renaissance versus the, guess the movers and shakers of the Renaissance and uh, the, the various leaders and members of the Italian houses. I think we've kind of gone through this a little bit, and like I feel like Fresco is just a little abstracted from what it's trying to represent, as most of these board games kind of are, but th- that one in particular, it does a good job of representing you know, collecting the paint sending out your assistance and waking up at the right time and going out and uncovering this Fresco. But Lorenzo does a little bit more for me personally at least in terms of theme and the time period because it the game itself the board represents the location as well as the individual you know the owner of these towers right lorenzo and then the various leader cards that come in and the different families that you're interacting with uh, especially in the expansion content kind of furthers that and brings in the, the different people who are part of this historical era and again it's not purely a historical game but it does a good job and goes out of its way to kind of bring those pieces in as much as any of these games do so i'm gonna go with lorenzo il magnifico Yeah, i think you mentioned theirs
1: is is absolutely on point i'm gonna go with fresco just because especially with the big box version it adds a lot more to the game than just kind of restoring these wondrous renaissance artwork here you're not just working on that you're also raising money by painting portraits which is fantastic the different colors that come into play Obviously, you're hiring these masters to come in to help you out. There's just so much different possibilities in this game. It's so vast. It's so complex. But it it really boils down to a really fun and thematic game, as far as you mentioned. Having the different assistants go out early, mixing the colors actually does matter, you know, Red and blue together gives you a purple and you need that. And there's only so much of that available. So I'm going to go Fresco. That means it goes on to our listeners. Anthony, what did they have to say?
0: All right. And the listeners on this one, uh, the, both of these games got a fair number of votes. I think they're good representations of the era. Lorenzo Il Magnifico got just a little bit more over the course of the whole thing. Barely, though. It was very close. So I think they they were as close as we were. All right. So that means our number three seed, Lorenzo Il
1: Magnifico, moves on to the next round. And finally, we have our last bracket. We are talking about the late modern age, and we are talking about two fantastic games that really probably powered through the most powerful bracket of all. We have our number nine seed, Lewis and Clark, versus our number two seed, Lizboa. What do you have, Anthony? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, every time either one of these games came up, I was very much an advocate for them. Lewis and Clark does a just a great job of showing that journey to the west and having these different individuals and you know representing the different historical figures across that journey there are some issues with the game in terms of you know how it represents certain elements and components and characters uh but overall you know as someone who grew up learning about Lewis and Clark and all these things that were related to the the exploration of the west it was a very interesting game and does a lot in that way but for me Liz Boa stands out Just a little bit more, because not only is it a representation of that time period of, you know, rebuilding Lisboa after these horrible sequence of natural disasters, but it integrates the theme into the mechanics in a much better way. So and and that's not something we see a ton in all these different Euro games we're talking about. This one does it really well. And uh, it's something that Vital Lacerda just generally does well in his games. And this is his big historical game, the one that really represents, you know, a particular era, especially one of importance to him. So I'm going to go with Lisboa and stick with the uh, with the with the high seed here.
1: Yeah, I think everything you said and a little bit more as far as you are rebuilding Lisboa from this number of tragedies. You had the earthquakes, the fires, the floods. And the board game actually represents this with the different colored cubes that are line throughout the streets that you have to clean off in order to be able to recycle and then build buildings in the game obviously you're dealing with the political structure and the church structure and they really do come into play and the different eras of the game and the cards represent that it's talking about now we have more technology we're able to do more things Do you want the church to help you or do you want to trade in the church's power for more political power throughout the game? And then obviously the red tape of the game. A lot of people are a little bit bummed out about Lisboa as far as like you have to go here and talk to this guy and you have to go here and play that card and go here. But, you know, that's unfortunately what comes down to dealing with the city and the bureaucracy of it all. So the game is well represented. It's a beautiful, beautiful game. I'm going to go Lisboa. All right, Anthony, so that means Lisboa moves on to the final round. And now, finally, for our board game bracket, Talking about the best historic era, we have a final four. Here we go. Our ancient bracket brings us Seven Wonders versus our medieval bracket, 878 Vikings. And a final competition, Anthony. What do you have to say about this one?
0: Yeah, this one is legit tough. I don't know. Like, I think they both do a good job of representing their eras. They bring in a lot of different elements. They showcase the different pieces. I mean, Seven Wonders kind of covers the entirety of, of its bracket. Like all of the ancient world, at least Europe and northern Africa. 878 Vikings is obviously about a very specific place in time. The name of it is 878 Vikings. It's, you know, it's very specific second half of the ninth century. Uh, I feel like for me, it's it's really close. These are very different experiences and very different things you're learning about but again i gotta go with 878 vikings just because it does its best to feel like a simulation without ever feeling like a simulation like you're not simulating because that's boring Uh, we had several games we almost put in these brackets that were simulations that just are not particularly interesting to play but it just does a good job of making those things fun because it highlights the differences between these factions and brings them out in a way that seven wonders for better or worse abstracts to a certain degree like you can play that game without realizing really what you're playing at times because you're just focusing on like uh, i need points cards i'm looking for technology you know that kind of thing so i'm gonna go with 878 viking yeah this is probably the most
1: difficult of choices throughout this whole competition for every reason that you mentioned and obviously the expansions and everything else that comes out with seven wonders the artwork is fantastic the opportunities to build a gold mine or something like that or Utilize a special technology, and if you don't, somebody else will. So you, you want to pick those things. The card drafting in Seven Wonders is fantastic. The tableau building is one of my favorite things of all time. Seven Wonders is one of my favorite games of all time. Obviously, the Babel expansion, the Armada expansion, just so many great expansions that add to the legacy of Seven Wonders, but it never really gets too clumsy. Obviously, there's Seven Wonders Duel that does a great two-player game. 878 8 Vikings is a game that I never thought I honestly would like. I thought it was something like, eh, and that, that kind of seems fine. I mean, I even let the Kickstarter kind of go past. But yet, as you mentioned, Anthony, even though it's a war game, it's not a war game that is just for war gamers. It's not just a game that just talks about you know, you know, troop movements and things as, as that level. You are playing with historical characters, you are doing things that match the times you're using technology, of the times, obviously, all the different elements that we're dealing with as far as the different fiefdoms and the kingdoms and the church at the time. It, it's just phenomenal. And obviously, the production is top notch. So even if you're not a war gamer, this is something that you could definitely love, and the tension is really rough there. So this is going to surprise everyone, but I'm going to win an 8 7 8 Vikings. I'm moving them on to the final round. All right, so that is our Cinderella team, the number 15 seed beating the number one seed. And now we move on to our early modern period, where we have Lorenzo Menafico versus our late modern period, where we have Lisboa. Anthony, two of your favorite games here. What are you going to say about this one?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I kept espousing the, you know, the way that Lorenzo brings in the different thematic elements of the time period and all these different things. And it and for me, part of it, too, is it really matched up well against a lot of the games from that early modern period are a little more abstracted. And they f- use the era as, you know, the theme and the setting, but not, don't necessarily integrate it as much into the actual gameplay. Compared to Lisboa, though, I, I feel like Lorenzo comes up short on a lot of those points. So everything I said about Lisboa before it's It's all just kind of thematically interwoven into that game. Um, I think you gave a really good overview of it in kind of that fourth round there. So I'm gonna go with Liz Boa just because it does such a good job and it just represents an era from the artwork to the mechanics to the just the general feel. Uh, And of the gameplay.
1: Yeah, I mean, Lorenzo Manifico is a great game. I enjoy the game a lot, but it really is abstracted. You're you're picking up certain cards and that lets you cut wood or mine something or get victory points. And that's all very fine. The expansion does a lot more as far as bringing the families involved. But that's pretty much it. For everything that we said in Moral Lisboa is something unlike any other game out there, especially dealing with the time appropriately and yet at the same time being something that's approachable by pretty much anybody. It's a heavy game, but it's definitely something worth your time. So Anthony, Lisboa moves on to the final round. So here we are. We got our two games matching up here. We have from the medieval period, 878 Vikings versus the late modern period. We're looking at Lisboa. And once again, we are looking at the best game that represents that historic era the best two phenomenal games two games that are in the top of my list probably the top of yours too anthony
0: what do you have to say about this final round make it good i really 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 appreciate how both of these games integrate theme and really draw on the historical period as a way to inform the mechanics and so if you don't know anything about the era you're learning something and if you do you appreciate what you're experiencing in a way that you wouldn't necessarily in like some of these other games, you might be like, well, I mean, that's not real. Okay. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> mechanically that, I guess that makes sense. Whereas in these, it's just, it's pitch perfect. Just the way it represents everything that happened and what the game is actually about. So I, it's really hard to kind of break it down and decide which of these does a better job. I think for me, I'm going to have to go with my, Gut on this one, and and that's that's I know that doesn't always turn out great for people who don't like A Feast for Odin, but it's not up here, so it's okay. <laughs> I'm gonna go with Lisboa. I think just as a as a time period that I didn't know anything about, really, and a historical context I didn't have a lot of information about, it really just kind of evokes it in a in a very particular way, and visually, it's just strongly imprinted on me what that game represents. You know, the difference for me here is
1: going to be how much of the culture, how much of the time, how much of the political maneuvering really is in play here. As I mentioned before, 878 is just not just a war game. There is so much more to the game, especially with the little extra components that you can add to the game, little modules that are added to it, that really bring much, much more into the game. Lisboa... Just by the game itself has political dealings, the culture, the church, the commerce, the actual construction of things that going on. There's there's just so much additional content there in the game itself, and it somehow does it so very well. It's just something that's phenomenal. Actually, even recently, somebody asked to actually play that game night. So I'm gonna go with Lisboa. So that means that Lisboa is the winner of the March Gamer Manus Best Historic Era for Games. All right. So congratulations to Lisboa and congratulations to Vitalis Cerda for once again creating such a fantastic game. We are so grateful for this phenomenal historical era game that is just hitting the table all the time. It's heavy, it's crunchy, it's phenomenal, and obviously it teaches us something about this Horrible, horrible situation of the great earthquake from 1755, but it also teaches us of the phenomenal history and the strength of a people to rebuild again. Definitely, absolutely. If you haven't played Lisboa, check it out, play it, jump back to our previous episodes. We reviewed it, we talked about it quite a lot. So that's going to be the episode, but don't forget, there
0: is a big winner from our bracket contest and it could be you with the best bracket. And so I'm going to sit down, I'm going to tally up all the scores and I'm going to figure out who got the closest in terms of points across all 64 games and 63 matchups. And uh, that'll be our winner. So I'll reach out to the winner here in the next few days. After you guys are listening to this next week's episode, we will announce it. So you can all hear who, who won and how close they got to having the perfect bracket. And uh, congratulations in advance to that winner, whoever that might be, and to everybody who participated. We had, again, almost 200 entries. A lot of people spent, you know, a good 10, 15 minutes running through all these different matchups and helping us decide which of these games would come out on top and literally helping us decide to a lot of tiebreakers in here. So uh, thank you again to everybody who did that.
1: All right, so that's everything for this week. Until next time, this is Chris. And this is Anthony. And we'll save you all a you at the table.